This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp and Insider Protocol. For any industry or company to have multiple regulators, I think privacy is a prime example where the FTC has some authority, for example, the CFPB has some authority. But again, that's not uncommon. I think what the situation calls out for is for Congress to help clarify. What are the lines of engagement? What are rules of engagement? Who does what? That's where I think the next frontier in this space is, is the clarifying regulatory framework, which I believe, I think the Toomey proposal is the first step in that direction. The question is, how do you make it bipartisan and how do you get to 60? Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Congressional debates over the $1 trillion infrastructure bill that's currently before the US House of Representatives have produced an unexpected sidebar development. The sudden arrival of the cryptocurrency industry into the limelight of policy discussion in DC. Depending on how you look at it, the intense fight in the Senate over a provision in that bill requiring cryptocurrency entities to report information to the IRS resulted in either a disappointing failure for the crypto lobby or an acknowledgement that it has arrived as a force to be reckoned with. In the end, efforts to amend what many regarded as some deeply flawed language were narrowly defeated. That was courtesy of a single holdout vote by Alabama Senator Richard Shelby. And now it looks likely the bill will be voted on by the Democrat-controlled House at the end of this month with that flawed provision still intact. But arguably more important than the result of that fight was the fact that it forced lawmakers to consider and try to understand some of the core concepts that define cryptocurrency. There's also the idea that if the government is creating ways to tax an industry, there are now reasons to believe it will be disinclined to shut it down. That said, the increased attention on crypto has also given its critics in Washington a bigger platform. Indeed, some of the pullback in the price of Bitcoin earlier this year was founded on fears of a regulatory backlash around the world. Still, with countless other regulatory issues on the horizon for this sector, and now SEC Chair Gary Gensler vowing today to bring the industry inside a regulatory framework, there's a sense that a topic that was once a sideline issue for policymakers is now much more prominent. What does this higher profile mean for the future of the industry and its relationship with policymakers, both here in the US and elsewhere? To discuss, we have two ideally placed guests. We're joined by Jared Lodeholt, a partner in law firm Ice Miller's Public Affairs Group, who among other prior roles has acted as senior counsel to the House Committee on Financial Services. And alongside Jared, we'll welcome Coindesk's own Nick Day, our managing editor for policy and regulation. But before they join us, let's do as we always do and welcome my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So hello there. Welcome to this new format. We're doing this live from the studio. I think this is an exciting new development for podcast. Obviously, those of you listening to this in the audio have got no idea what we're talking about because it's all just <laughs> noise to you. But this is fun, I think. It's good to have a change. I like it. 
like it. Yeah, we've been doing this almost a year. It's time to shake it up a little bit. I, I enjoy it. <laughs> so, you know, one thing I, I want to tell you a story, Michael, quickly, because I was thinking when you're talking about taxation as kind of the gateway drug to, uh, you know, maybe getting legitimacy within the eyes of regulators. Um, it reminded me of back in the early aughts, I had a client come to me back when I was a lawyer for nonprofits. I worked with big charitable organizations. And this group that was a precursor to what would now be called a pot dispensary, marijuana dispensary, came to the law firm and said, you know, can you help us make the case that we should be paying sales tax? We should basically be collecting sales tax on what we're doing and paying that tax to the government in some format. And it was a very clever way of trying to legitimize and acknowledge this is a, a growing industry, a very big industry. That attempt initially was not successful, but subsequent attempts were successful. And of course, we see where we are with marijuana legalization today. So I think there is a lot to be said. There's a lot of traction as a strategy to thinking about uh, taking advantage of taxation as a way of saying, here's a giant industry. It's not going anywhere. There is an opportunity for the government to reap benefit from the existence of that industry and to then have that pave the way for more acceptance of the fact that, that industry is existing and in fact thriving. It does feel like just one more pillar in the legitimization yeah. and almost like unbreakability of the sector as if this is no longer a flash in the pan idea. This is here to stay. I think that's a really good way to, to found this conversation. So let's bring in our guests. For, uh, let's see, uh, Nick and Jared, great to have you with us. You know, Nick, you've just done a fabulous job reporting on this. I think it's fair to say the finest crypto regulatory reporter in the world, Nick Day. And, you know, with your tremendous uh, weekly newsletter, State of Crypto, you know, you're really sort of giving us a sense of what's coming. On that note, why don't you lay out a little bit of what the regulatory agenda currently looks like? Obviously, there's the infrastructure bill, but there's various other things that, that we have our eyes on. You've highlighted some of those in your newsletter. Thank you for the kind words and thank you for having me. Yeah, this uh, fall looks to really be shaping up to be pretty, I'd say, active for the crypto regulatory intersection. Besides the infrastructure bill, which the House will mark up uh, this coming month and vote on at the end of September, uh, we're seeing the SEC really gearing up to take action on a number of different issues, whether that's Bitcoin exchange-traded funds or ETFs, which is something the industry has been clamoring for for a good three or four years now, if not longer. Decentralized finance, which you know the SEC has already started taking some action on and is kind of hinting at you know far more to come, as well as you know just a handful of other issues uh, within the securities kind of you know commodities world, who's regulating exchanges, things like that. We're also seeing the Treasury Department at large gearing up to try and get more of its priorities enacted into either legislation or just attached as other broader tax packages it's working on. Thanks, Nick, for that. Jared, I'd love to, to turn to you now. Uh, you know, clearly crypto is on some lawmakers' radars, but is that a bit right. uh, isolated of a phenomenon or do you think it's really kind of generally on radar? And what does that mean? Has the industry arrived now? Absolutely. I think it's broadly on the radar and it's on the radars of the committees of jurisdiction. So in both chambers, you've got House Agriculture and House Financial Services in the Senate. You've got banking and you've got the Agricultural Committee as well because they have jurisdiction over the commodities, future trading, CFTC. And so it's broadly, I think, on the radar. And I think it extends well beyond the tax provision and the infrastructure bill because we saw a Senate hearing not too long ago where this was it was all about virtual currencies and about what a regulatory framework would look like. Uh, you saw Senator Toomey last week announced that he was going to solicit feedback for a comprehensive bill on virtual currencies. And you've had Chairman Gensler from the SEC in the last yesterday, I think, 
make some public comments about exchanges and basically asking exchanges to voluntarily register with the SEC. It's on a lot of radars across Washington. It's in the committees of jurisdiction. It's in Treasury. You've had Senator Warren call for FSOC to play a much more active role. You've had the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau flag the uptick in complaints from consumers about virtual currencies and the exchanges. So there's no more hiding. I think this is very much, I would say in the financial services space, the top issue because the investor demand has sparked that much attention, quite frankly, since the pandemic started, because I think that's when this became kind of mainstream, so to speak. And Washington is fundamentally reactive. So I think they're reacting to the demand. But you also have in somebody like Gary Gansler, for example, who taught a class of virtual currencies at MIT. So you actually have a regulator in a chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission who knows the industry. And he's talking about it really clearly and in clear terms and in terms that he wants Congress to expand his authority. Because again, you've got kind of a regulatory food fight between the SEC, the CFTC around the security versus commodity aspect of virtual currency. So they're very much on everyone's radar. Definitely. We've seen a lot of politicians, political activity, a lot of statements being made in various places, the press and private hearings and in sessions. I'm curious about the regulatory part of this, though. You know, there is kind of this this fight, it seems, brewing between the CFTC and the SEC, a bit of a turf war. Could you just comment on that and, and your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a little bit of tea leaf reading in here, right? The SEC chair, Gary Gensler, has made a number of remarks kind of saying, you know, we think we need some greater authorities to regulate this industry in both you know, public speeches as well as letters to lawmakers. He wrote a letter to Senator Elizabeth Warren saying, you know, we need plenary authority to better oversee crypto exchanges and market overall. But at the same time, you know, right now, the way it kind of shakes out is you have the SEC overseeing securities and securities trading platforms, but most crypto exchanges don't register as something like that. They you know, list cryptocurrencies. And uh, a lot of them, you know, or some of them might say, you know, according to our best interpretation, we don't think we have any securities listed. Most recently, I think, you know, the big example is XRP. As soon as the SEC sued, a lot of exchanges delisted or suspended trading in XRP saying, okay, well, you know, we didn't think it was a security before, but now we're going to wait for the SEC litigation to end. The CFTC kind of sort of has a greater claim to jurisdiction over a lot of these cryptocurrencies. But in recent you know, weeks, officials from that agency have said, you know, we oversee uh, fraud and we oversee derivatives. So Bitcoin futures, Ether futures, things like that. But they don't necessarily oversee the spot market. So we have this kind of gray area where the SEC wants to have jurisdiction over some of these spot markets, it would appear. And the CFTC says, you know, we don't necessarily think that's the right place, but also we don't have jurisdiction necessarily either, unless there's a fraudulent action or something that really impacts one of the markets we are regulating. And that's kind of where I see the turf war kind of brewing the most is, you know, just who does these exchanges report to at the federal level? Is it the SEC? Is it the CFTC? Is it neither? Or, you know, is there room for a different entity to come in and say, you know, you guys are falling under our jurisdiction instead? Jared, you've watched these fights presumably over the years, you know, uh, seeing how the sausages get made in DC. How do you see this playing out? I mean, have we seen this before? Is this a unique scenario because of the distinct nature of cryptocurrency? Or is this just yet another example of what is always something of a turf war, given the sort of fragmented structure of the American regulatory framework? 
Yeah, it's not unique at all. Uh, it's actually pretty common, I think, in the financial services space for any industry or company to have multiple regulators. I think privacy is a prime example where the FTC has some authority, for example, the CFPB has some authority. But again, that's not uncommon. I think what the situation calls out for is for Congress to help clarify. What are the lines of engagement? What are rules of engagement? Who does what? That's where I think the next frontier in this space is, is the clarifying regulatory framework, which I believe, I think the Toomey proposal is the first step in that direction. The question is, how do you make it bipartisan and how do you get to 60? And what does that ultimately look like? And I think that is on the legislative side of things. On the regulatory side of the shop, again, I think a lot of the policymaking is going to be through enforcement orders and guidance and interpretation of the existing authority. And that also, I mean, again, that's going to be subject to litigation and kind of a back and forth, but more importantly, engagement from the industry. So again, I think this is the time for the crypto and virtual currency industry to come and engage. Because I think in Washington, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I think ultimately, the industry, I think, understands that and they're starting to figure out what that looks like. After climbing 1,400% in total value loft last year, DeFi continues to quickly innovate over traditional finance and is on track to become the financial infrastructure of tomorrow. This new infrastructure has unique security needs, and QuantStamp has already secured over $100 billion worth of digital assets for the best projects in the space. Visit quantstamp.com slash blog to learn why DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and BarnBridge trust QuantStamp to fulfill their security needs. That's quantstamp.com slash blog to learn more. The Insider Protocol presents the first high-frequency trading Bitcoin bot. Our upcoming version 2.0 algorithms are specifically made for our hedge fund clients, but we're making them available for you. Besides going to Binance.Launchpad, the team will be integrating Binance Smart Chain into the ecosystem in the first quarter of 2022. The Insider Protocol is an entire ecosystem of projects consisting of Atlas Dex Swap, a Mimblewimble-based blockchain, DeFi, and our upcoming Dex Change. For more information, visit InsiderProtocol.com. That's InsiderProtocol.com. So, Jared, just on this SEC versus CFTC point, why should the average person care? Like, what's the implication if one of these agencies winds up having an oversized, let's say, regulatory presence within the ecosystem versus the other? Well, I think ultimately it's a function of what you're allowed to do with your regulators is a function of what you see as a consumer. So what is listed on an exchange? What can happen on an exchange? Fees, disclosures, brokers, licensing, the cost of doing business associated with the regulatory compliance obligations, I think, do affect your operations and what you can afford to do. And that ultimately, I think, affects the consumer experience. So I know a lot of the conversation is kind of day-to-day inside baseball around the law. Fundamentally, I think it boils down to what offerings do you see when you open an exchange? What disclosures are you required to have to provide? Fees and caps and all the other things that I think come with being a regulated industry. Much in the same way, if you log into your E-Trade account, there are going to be certain things you see. You have to get certain statements, certain disclosures, and so forth. So I think it affects the user experience for the investor. But also, I mean, I think, quite frankly, there's a broader conversation of when an industry becomes mainstream and larger financial institutions come into play, One of the conversations that they're going to have is around due diligence and what is required under the law so that these platforms can expand and meet more 
consumers. So I think the regulatory work has a very much of an inside baseball element to it. But ultimately, it does boil down into what is the user experience on the other side? What is the investor experience? But also, what is the investor recourse when something goes wrong? So I think for investors in particular, in particular retail investors that may not necessarily have the back end resources of institutional investors, you do care who's at the table because you want to know who to go to when you need recourse. It has practical implications for sure. And I think I, I appreciate that question because we have a lot of these conversations in Washington about what matters in the alphabet soup, but the average person's like, why do I even care about this? And I think the answer is it will affect your user experience. And it also affects what happens when things go wrong. Jared, speaking of things that the average person really should be caring about, it's like literally access to money and not necessarily here in the US, but right. outside of the world. And you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you back on the show here is because you threw out something during First Mover when we had you in on Monday. And I was like, oh God, I want to dig down into this. You talked about de-risking. You talked about the problems yeah. that are very prominent in the Caribbean and something that Sheila and I talk a lot about on this show. We, we do think that there's a, a global challenge in the way that excessive regulations around the movement of money come back and hurt particularly the poor. And I think this question right. is absolutely pertinent right now because of Afghanistan, right? We've just shut down. Western Union has shut down. There's no access. We've got to get money into these NGOs, into these women and others who need it. And at the same time, not obviously get it into the hands of the bad guys. Is there an awareness of this? I mean, I've always felt like that Treasury's response was so knee-jerk. We've just got to stop the AML, stop the, the money laundering, get, go after the bad guys, but never a sophisticated enough understanding of all of the costs of this. Is there a rising awareness of how we might do things differently? Yeah, I mean, on the payments front, our, our payment system in this country is broken. And I think one of the reasons why virtual currencies have risen in popularity very recently is that you can move money faster. And I think ultimately we want money to move in real time. And I think that is the appeal of virtual currencies. And that is, a part, quite frankly, one of the reasons why I think DeFi has become what it is is because our intermediaries, namely our banks, I think have rails that, payment rails that are outdated. And that, quite frankly, lies with the Federal Reserve because ultimately they manage the payment system in this country. And I think that is a question that I know the Fed through Fed now, they've tried to start to fix. But I think the market, quite frankly, is moving faster than regulators on this because the demand and consumer expectations is that if I have money here, I should be able to move it there the same way I should be able to do everything else that I do in my life financially. So, no, I think everyone is aware of it. The question is, what do we do about it? And where does that lie? That responsibility lies, I think, ultimately with the Federal Reserve around our payment system. And, and I think a point I made in, in First Movers the other day was use cases. The future of making the case for mainstream and virtual currencies is this is how we make money move at the pace of business and at the pace of consumer expectations. And that's particularly important with cross-border transactions, where depending on what part of the world you're in, you may never get the money. It may never actually clear. And in humanitarian crisis, you see that that is an acute challenge that you want to be fixed. And this is blockchain. This technology in particular, I think, has the potential to resolve these issues. But to a point you made earlier, the de-risking issue in the Caribbean and correspondent banking has been a problem for years that we have yet to fix. And it's all largely around payment instructions between financial institutions and our outdated payment system, which my hope would be that perhaps a virtual a digital dollar, right, helps us address this issue, which to Latin American and the Caribbean, being able to bank easily with the United States is, I think, 
everybody's dream. And that has just not been the case because of payments. This is, again, a moment where it is imperative that the industry make its case for why it matters. And I think one of the ways that it does this is through making the case that, yes, this is how we make cross-border transactions easier. And I think you help facilitate trade in this way. And so I think folks around the world who want to do business in the United States and vice versa, blockchain really matters. And I think virtual currencies are a way to do that. So, so Nick, what we're talking about here is stuff that you've obviously spent a lot of time focusing on in addition to all this SEC stuff. And that is, you know, the travel rule from the, the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, and the various rules from FinCEN around anti-money laundering and know your customer. And it looks to me, though, as if, you know, over time, those regulations have got stricter and stricter. And, you know, we, we know with the travel rule, for example, that it's starting to capture reporting requirements and so that you have to report on self-custody wallets, for example, really sort of putting more and more burdens on you know, resolving the problem that Jared was just talking about, which, as he said, leads to big problems with entire regions finding it very hard to get hold of money because of these restrictive compliance laws. What's your sense, having watched the machinations around this part of the things in Washington, you know, is there latitude for a somewhat more liberal regime going forward? I think it's really going to depend, at least in part, on the industry, but also partly on, you know, whether or not there is going to be any kind of real international consensus. Like you said, the Financial Action Task Force has been recommending these, you know, forms of guidance that countries implement certain laws and, you know, certain restrictive regulatory frameworks. And it's been very piecemeal in the actual execution, right? Some countries are moving more swiftly than others. I think, uh, you know, we've got some countries that aren't even planning to implement the FATF travel rule until 2022, 2023, which means, you know, as far as FATF is concerned, it's not plugging the holes it's trying to plug. So it's kind of like the, that's the regulatory side. And then on the industry side, you know, we've got these growing issues. Ransomware, I think, is one of the big examples I can think of. But uh, if you talk to cybersecurity experts and, you know, even to some financial regulators, they say that the best possible course of action to mitigate ransomware payments using crypto is through a unified, harmonized international approach to crypto payments. And again, we're still not just seeing that yet. So some countries might take a more uh, strict approach to crypto regulation and crypto transaction regulation because they're concerned about how exactly these cryptocurrencies are being used, even if some of those use cases are happening in countries that are completely separate. And that's been kind of the, the big concern that we've seen, expressed especially you know in the last two or three months, you know, given the recent ransomware attacks around the world. Yeah, you know, I think we're definitely seeing uh, an attempt to create jurisdictional advantages by some players, right, who want to be very crypto friendly, for example, and others who are maybe more concerned about ransomware and other kinds of, they have other concerns around this stuff that are maybe more prone to be a little bit less accepting of uh, crypto in their jurisdiction or more skeptical around it. And they aren't really looking to attract that, the business or the industry to their jurisdiction. So what do you think the prospects are, Nick, for global collaboration around this, you know, given that there is an opportunity right now and jurisdictions that are kind of jumping into this and being more open, you know, are seeing advantages already to that in terms of what they're able to attract. But at the end of the day, our payment system is global. There is a need for cross-border payments are, are a critical part of the payment system and not all payments are domestic, right? There's a lot of that need. What do you think? Do you think that's just kind of dead in the water? Or do you think that we're eventually going to have to see some kind of harmonization at a global level? I think we're going to see at least more attempts at creating this kind of harmonization. I don't know how successful they'll be, but, you know, just this morning, we we're talking about SEC Chair Gary Gensler earlier. He gave a speech to the European Parliament and discussed crypto, among other things. 
and discussed in particular bringing crypto into a specific regulatory framework. So we're definitely going to continue seeing, I think, efforts to try and harmonize all of this and to create some kind of unified approach that will create a standard for most countries to adhere to. But as you said, you know, some countries want to appear more crypto friendly or some countries want to, I mean, you just don't care enough to implement certain laws. And so I think those are going to be where we see the holes. And those holes might be why we'll see more strict approaches from countries that are genuinely concerned about money laundering or terrorist financing or, you know, other illicit activities. And Jared, what about you? Do you see the same kind of attempts on the horizon and how successful do you think they might be? I think they're necessary, right? I I think they're necessary to creating a system that works around the globe consistently. I think ultimately what what bothers us about the payment system is this inconsistency, depending on where you are in the world, that that will tell you what happens. And obviously, I think that's unfair. I think most of us want our money to move no matter where we are in the world, no matter where we live. And so I think global cooperation is, is important because payments don't respect borders. So you need a global payment system that works. So you'll need global cooperation alignment across, the, I think, the relevant bodies of law that regulate the payments industry. And I think we've seen that, for example, around anti-money laundering. So we've got a framework that we've seen before where we've coordinated the process by which we move money. So this isn't, none of this is news. I just think it takes some work from the industry and government around coordination alignment to get the job done. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal just the other day, Ian Talley was reporting, and he, he cited some intelligence officials in the U.S. who were speaking out ag- against, uh, in fact, the language inside the infrastructure bill and and warning that if it was too draconian, that it would create this really major security risk for the United States because it would push crypto operatives, you know, into the shadows and into different places. That struck me as almost like a watershed moment where you had the intelligence uh, community coming out and saying, wait, Congress, this is crazy. This is a real issue. And them actually coming down on the side of the crypto community because they really wanted to make sure that there was this, this open framework and that you're not pushing things about. So it seems to me that if you take that at its word, this international trade-off, which we've always talked about, the idea of regulatory arbitrage and everything else, it sounds like that issue is really becoming quite important to the way that you know, key figures in Washington think about what they do next. Is that an accurate reading on things, Jared? I mean, what's, what's the way that people are framing this bigger international trade-off question? Well, I mean, again, I think we spend a lot of time talking about Congress, but ultimately the implementation, this is going to happen with the IRS. And so I think that is the next round of engagement is the IRS developing a a way to do tax reporting that does not drive players underground, but also facilitates, I think, the kind of transparency and frankly, a revenue collection that ultimately is the reason why they did it in the first place. But I also don't want to overreact. I don't think it's wise to present this as an existential threat to the industry necessarily, right? Because this is the same kind of reporting that you'd have to do for any other asset class. Uh, And so ultimately, I think the IRS understands that. And in the administration of what Congress passes, they'll seek to strike that balance. And I'm sure the IRS, the IRS is in Treasury. They work closely with other parts of Treasury, like FinCEN and OFAC, where they know and understand the world of kind of illicit activity and illicit financing. So I'm actually far more saying when I think they're probably most people in that 
Congress, that's where a lot of the energy and sometimes a lot of the panic kind of stems from Congress. But I think at the end of the day, the agencies as well, this will live and the IRS will, I think, ultimately have the final say in what this looks like in the day to day lives of these businesses. But I always want to avoid hyperbole, right, because I actually don't think it helps anybody. I don't think it helps anybody make sound policy. And I think it actually alarms markets. And if you spook the markets, I don't think anybody wins. So I think it, we all win by being very level-headed and cool-headed about this. And I actually have a lot of faith that the IRS will ultimately listen to the industry and the intelligence community and do the right thing. Well, I, I think that some folks in the industry should probably take us a call to action to maybe be a little bit less. Uh, it is a call to action yeah, to be exactly, engaged, exactly. right? People who've listened to this show for a while will know that if there's a drum I beat to, you know, to death, it's really around the IRS. If there's any sort of master manipulator right. in the system, it's the IRS. It's the fact that taxation is the number one driver of behavior and incentives by companies, by industry, Absolutely. internationally, you know, of all these kinds of things, right? And we've had a lot of discussion of that on the show as well. I also have to note, you know, the comedy in, in a way of this, that the intelligence community who, I mean, they love crypto. They're like, please use that. Please create right. a record of a transaction that we can right. then it's have. A public as ledger. Right. It's a public ledger. Exactly, right. right? Like, please do that. Don't use cash. Please, you, you know, so I can only imagine the kind of consternation. Like, what are y'all doing? Why are you trying to take away this ability we have to actually track criminal activity in its new way that's relatively straightforward? And again, we'll talk about right. Colonial Pipeline. We'll bring it up over and over again as the classic example of, you don't want to use Bitcoin for your ransomware attack, you know? You know, Nick, love to have you chime in as well, just on the taxation question in general. We started with that at the top of the of the show. But other thoughts on that is kind of being the, again, the gateway drug to driving other kinds of behavior and maybe comments on the security angle as well. Well, just to, you know, add on to what Jared was saying, uh, the IRS is not, you know, they're looking at this as a possible source of revenue. So I don't think they're going to come out with some draconian measure that will drive people underground and really stop using cryptos in such a way that the IRS can actually capture the information they're looking for. Um, you know, that would not serve the IRS's purpose in implementing this law. So, yeah, I, I agree that, you know, I don't think whatever final interpretation we're going to see is going to be, oh, all DEXs have to comply and everyone has to report all this information or they're being shut down. I think it'll be some kind of, you know, more nuanced, more reasonable approach that exchanges can take a look at. Yeah, that in turn will make it, you know, probably make it easier for the IRS. Uh, the industry has been kind of, you know, clamoring for not this exact guidance, but, you know, this type of guidance for a while now. So if an ideal world exists and we see that happening, it will be something that the industry will, you know, after all said and done, they'll take a step back and say, okay, you know, this works for us. This makes sense. We can do this. It'll solve the IRS's uh, need and it'll raise the funds that, you know, the government is looking to raise. So just to wrap this up, guys, I just thought maybe useful to have uh, each of you weigh in and just give us a sense, you know, look at the crystal ball. Where do you see things being, say, in a year's time uh, with regard to some of these big questions? Like, are we going to resolve this infrastructure bill? Is there going to be something clearer, you know, Bitcoin ETFs? What's the big thing on the horizon? Nick, if you can give us your take first. A year from now, I think we will see the infrastructure bill question resolved. It'll be, you know, whatever it is. But I think uh, a year from now, we're going to probably not even remember just what exactly this last month was like. I think <laughs> we'll be, you know, we'll have adapted to whatever the new normal is. You'll get is. some sleep, maybe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in an ideal world, I'll get some sleep. Um, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of these questions answered. I don't know if they're going to be answers the industry likes. But, you know, I think in a year from now, we might finally get a Bitcoin futures exchange traded fund that 
uh, people can invest in safely without you know actually getting exposed to deep market volatility in Bitcoin itself. I think we're going to see more enforcement actions, like Jared was saying, uh, certainly around DeFi and other parts of the crypto industry, especially within the U.S. And whether or not that leads to actual guidance that exchanges can abide by, I think that I actually think will still be up in the air, to be honest. I, that feels like it's going to take a very, very long time to see resolved. Jared, Nick actually mentioned DeFi there, and maybe so I'll be a little bit more pointed in this closing question for you. I mean, clearly one that's very interesting, not only for the fact that it's new and fresh and you know, folks got their eyes on it, but it raises all sorts of curly questions about you know, who do you go after, like who's in charge, and, and do you have authority when it's a supposedly decentralized exchange? What's your take on the way that this is going to play out? Because clearly the SEC has got its eyes on DeFi. That's been mentioned a couple of times now by Gary Gensler. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this might be the first Frankie Beverly reference on Coindesk, but I think it'll be a little bit of joy and pain, right? I think mm-hmm. you're going to see ETFs. You're going to see progress, I think, in the industry where people begin to see some clarity around who does what. So, I mean, I think that's a joy. I think some of the pain will be growing pains. You're going to see in a year from now, some form of an IRS interpretation of what tax collection information sharing look like. You'll probably see some more enforcement action and investigations. And we've talked a lot about Washington, but what we've not talked about is state regulators and that license. I think many of your MSBs and your exchanges and your state attorneys general who have pretty extensive securities and consumer protection authority as well. So, I mean, again, I think if if there's a song for the industry, I think it's Joy and Pain by Frankie Beverly, because I think you'll get a lot of that over the next few years. But hopefully we get some clarity, too, because I think ultimately that's what we're all looking for from the industry is what are the rules of engagement and who does what and who's responsible for what. But, yeah, a little bit of Joy and Pain, but I think that's what happens when industries come of age. And I think the term I've used in all these conversations is that this is very much a coming of age moment for the industry. But when you come of age, you have growing pains. And so, like I said, a little bit of joy and pain. But I think that's ultimately what happens and, and we'll adjust. And I think like every other industry, you adjust to those changes in, in the regulatory marketplace in the same way you deal with them in the marketplace. Well, I got to thank you for the reference because I'm going to have that in my head leaving our show today. There you go. It's, it's a, you can never go wrong with Frankie Bell. There you go. I'd also be remiss. And Nick, I want to congratulate you for your uh, your award uh, of Reporter of the Year for crypto journalism. That's, that's just really huge. So I don't know if anyone's going to let you sleep anytime soon, but hopefully there will be a little less action in the markets and in the policy space over time as things cool off slightly or we get a little more clarity and, and the direction kind of becomes even more clear. Thanks both of you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, lots more we could have talked about. So many different angles here. We're looking forward to having you back on the show at some point. Okay, folks, that's all we have time for for now. Thanks very much for joining us on Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. We'll be back next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Nick Day, and Jared Lodholt. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. 